0: Dementia in Practice is recorded and produced in multiple locations. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands on which we meet. We pay our respect to Elders past, present and emerging, and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal peoples, their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia.
1: So if we can make the diagnosis in stage one, which is what we'd really like to be doing, then we can talk to patients about what to expect along the way. So, for example, when we say in stage two, there might be some significant behavioural change. So all of a sudden, someone might start wandering. You've actually warned them that that might happen. So it doesn't come as a shock.
2: Hi, it's Hilton Copy with you and thanks for coming back. If this is your first episode, that's fine. It's not a true crime podcast, so you can listen in any order that you like although this one will be a two-part episode on diagnosing dementia. In this part, we'll talk about some of the challenges that we may face when we're seeing a person presenting with a possible dementia. And in the next episode, we'll get a bit more practical with some of the specific things that you might look out for and what you might do or say if you suspect that someone has dementia. With me, Each and every episode are my colleagues from Dementia Training Australia, Dr. Marita Long and Dr. Steph Daly. Steph and Marita, welcome back. In a moment, we'll talk about some of our own challenges that we've encountered as GPs in diagnosing dementia. But Marita, to get us started, what's your elevator pitch for GPs to make them really want to brush up on diagnosing dementia?
1: All righty. So... Look, when I start doing orientation with our registrars at work, I always tell them they need a good working knowledge of 187 conditions. So that's a lot, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So, why should dementia get special attention? Well, dementia is the leading cause of death for women, second leading cause overall, although the most recent statistics are putting it as the leading cause of death overall. So, it's an important one. We've got an aging population. So, for the next little while, we're going to be seeing much more of this. And it's one of the diagnoses that GPs really find difficult and there's a good news part so the good news is that being able to provide a structured approach to making a timely diagnosis we can support GPs to offer their patients a gift which is a path of action a chance to modify risk factors that may slow down the progression of the disease and allow people living with dementia the opportunity to make plans for their future.
0: Yeah, and we saw exactly that in episode one with Anne. She was able to make changes to her home environment, where she lived, and also put in place some of those things like advanced care directives once she had the diagnosis. And she also reflected about the importance of that timely diagnosis.
2: So, Marita, you mentioned that making a diagnosis of dementia is complex. I guess one of the first things in making a diagnosis is understanding what a condition is. So how might you define dementia?
1: dementia is really a progressive global life-limiting condition that involves generalized brain degeneration. And the interesting thing is I guess that it affects different people in different ways and it has many different causes. So it's really an umbrella term that encompasses a collection of symptoms. In Australia the most common um, cause is Alzheimer's disease and that's followed by vascular and we often see a mixed pattern. In Africa, though, for example, the most common cause is actually an HIV related dementia, and I've only seen one of those um, working as a GP in Australia. Have you guys seen any other dementias that are from less common causes?
0: One that springs to mind, I suppose, is some of the other conditions like supranuclear palsy often presents with the dementia and it's less likely to present initially with that. So they'll often present with movement um, issues and then the cognitive changes happen a bit later on. So it's important to consider all these other diseases in which you can experience dementia as part of those.
2: My situation's a little bit more personal. My father had a very unusual form of dementia that really was difficult to classify and was only once he got really seriously ill at the end of his life and all his medications were stopped and he sort of had this awakening that we realised that his dementia was possibly caused by uh, an anticonvulsant that he was taking.
1: So there you go. So there are lots of different causes, but I guess for the mainstay of this podcast, we'll be focusing on Alzheimer's dementia, vascular, or the mixed patterns that we're seeing.
2: So Steph, Marita mentioned that as GPs, making a diagnosis of dementia can be challenging. What have you found have been some of the challenges in making that diagnosis?
0: I guess one of the big issues is that the symptoms tend to appear over time. So as GPs, we see people for 15-minute appointments often and so if you're seeing people for lots of little 15 minute appointments it can be difficult to pick up when there is a decline in that person's functioning. Um, so that's one of the things that, that I find difficult but also there isn't any specific test that we can do that says yes this person definitely has the diagnosis whereas with diabetes or something you do an HbA1c and you, you get clarity as to whether that person has diabetes or not.
1: Yeah, I think one of the other really big barriers is that there's fear and stigma associated with the diagnosis of dementia.
2: And that can be for the person who's maybe developing a dementia, they would be frightened about that. And family members are often really frightful of their partner or parent developing a dementia
0: not only that i think we have to understand that doctors themselves can be worried about making the diagnosis and the implications of that in terms of you know legal things or how they how they discuss driving with that person or even if they have their own barriers for making that diagnosis because of their preconceptions about the disease
2: And there's sometimes a thought that, well, why would you want to make a diagnosis when there's no treatment? And we've heard already about the importance of making an early diagnosis. And while there may be no curative treatment, there are definitely treatments that can be offered and interventions put into place to make life easier for the person with dementia and their families. So we think it's important that GPs are aware of the process for making that diagnosis of dementia. To help with that, we've developed a framework or a number of frameworks to make it easier to make a diagnosis of dementia. And one of those is what we call the domains of dementia to get across this idea that dementia is more than just a memory problem. Steph, can you run us through the five domains of dementia that can be helpful in considering when uh, making a diagnosis?
0: Yeah, sure. Having a framework is a really helpful tool because it it's just a few things to remember and it helps you to think about your history taking a little bit clearer about the questions that you might want to ask to cover those domains. So when we talk about the domains of dementia, we're talking about cognitive decline, which is, as we know, forgetting appointments, perhaps having some memory problems, word finding difficulties. But then also people will have some form of functional decline as well. So this might be struggling to manage with cooking recipes or managing their finances for example and so asking questions about this in your history taking can be helpful. We also know that people will experience some psychiatric symptoms and these could be anxiety or depression for example but also hallucinations and these can occur either earlier on in the disease or later on as well and then we talk about behaviour changes. Now, when we're talking about behavior changes, it might be disinhibited behavior. It might be wondering or calling out or repetitive questioning. And these behavior changes mainly occur later on in the disease, but it's always important to ask about them because carers and relatives might have noticed that they're occurring. And finally, the last domain is physical decline. This is when it shows how the brain is really affected by the the disease process and it's affecting your ability to walk, talk. Sometimes patients will become incontinent. They lose the ability to want to eat or drink. And at this point in time, you're really entering the sort of later stages of the disease and people may even be bedbound and will probably be living in a residential aged care facility.
2: So five domains of dementia. Let's see if I can remember them. Cognition. Cognitive decline. Function. Functional decline. Some psychiatric changes, which are part of the dementia or may be coexisting mm-hmm. uh, with the dementia. Then there's the behaviour change, which is something different from how the person was before. And then finally, the physical decline. Mm-hmm. To make it easier in terms of applying an approach to the diagnosis we've worked with Jane Tolman who's a geriatrician from Hobart and she's developed what she called the four inclusion criteria and three exclusion criteria for a diagnosis of dementia. Marita can you run us through those please?
1: Yeah, sure. So this is like a deconstruction of the DSM-4 or the DSM-5 to make it a lot easier. So four inclusion criteria. The first of that is being a gradual onset of short term memory problems. So in that, if, if a patient comes to you and they've noticed uh, the last week or two weeks that they're having memory problems, it's unlikely to be a dementia. It has to be a gradual onset. So we're really talking months, years. Sometimes that's a bit of picking out in the history. It also has to be getting worse, it has to be progressive. So we talked a little bit last um, episode about mild cognitive impairment, which in some cases is going to be static. This has to be getting worse. And a tool of a way around that is, how was the person a year ago or perhaps five years ago and you'll see that there's been a progressive decline. There has to be some failure of function. So you can't have some memory problems that are getting a little bit worse, but functioning perfectly well. Of course, keeping in mind that there could be uh, family members who might be helping along with that function. So, again, it's picking out when someone tells you, oh, no, mum's cooking fine. Well, is she chopping up the dinner? Is she cooking it? is she managing to follow all those steps or is she reheating a meal. You know, so we've got to sort of pick around these questions sometimes to, to look at the failure of function. And because it's more than a memory problem, there has to be evidence of other cortical dysfunction, and that might be a dysphagia, so a language problem, a dyspraxia, so a performing task problem, not being able to manage um, the remote control, for example, and or some agnosia, so difficulty remembering the names of things. So there are four inclusion criteria, gradual onset, short term memory, Progressive, There has to be a failure of function and some evidence of other areas of the brain being detected more than just memory. And then we've got our exclusion criteria, so you can't make a diagnosis of dementia if someone's had having or had a recent delirium. So whilst a delirium might be a red red flag to us that someone's cognition might be um, a little bit lower, their reserve might be a bit lower, we can't make a diagnosis of dementia in that state. We've talked a lot about stress, depression, anxiety, that that can coexist. Or that can be an alternative diagnosis to someone with dementia. So if someone has a depression or anxiety, we can't diagnose dementia. We should treat the depression and anxiety and then come back and have a look. And of course, we have to think about any other organic illness. And as Hilton just talked about before, his dad having a diagnosis potentially caused through medication so we want to look for any other cause could there be a medication could there be a vitamin b12 deficiency could there be some thyroid dysfunction so three exclusion criteria delirium depression or anxiety or any other organic illness
2: so i'm hearing a bit of a recurring theme here with these exclusion criteria marita that uh, if one of those three things is identified treat the person for that condition as best as possible and then reassess for the four inclusion criteria, is that right?
1: Perfect. So it really shows how we can use those four inclusion and three exclusion criteria in our diagnostic process so well.
2: And just to clarify a little with a delirium, after someone has a delirium, how long should we wait before reassessing for the inclusion criteria?
1: Yeah, look, I, I don't know if there's any sort of strict number here, but I think you'd want to give someone probably a good couple of months to really make sure they're back to their baseline before we reassess.
2: Because it does take a while to to recover from something like yeah, that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So we're talking about making new diagnoses of dementia uh, in and using those exclusion criteria to, um, before making a new diagnosis. And our goal is to try and make a diagnosis early on in a person's journey with dementia and the the thing about a journey with dementia is that it changes with time so one of the other frameworks that we've developed is what we call the stages of dementia and Steph i wonder if you might give us an overview of the three stages of dementia that we find helpful
0: so helpfully, we've categorized the stages into three stages, but these are really just a guide. There's not a thing where one day you're stage one and the next day you're stage two. And we've used the nomenclature of stage one, two and three rather than the previous terms of mild, moderate and severe, because we don't feel that there's anything mild about a diagnosis of dementia. And the core theme for all of these stages is really the The theme of dignity and maintaining that person's dignity throughout their journey with the disease. But stage one, we're really talking about when people are still maintaining some form of independence. They might be supported living at home to manage day to day things with perhaps some carers going in or helpful family. Moving through to stage two, people might be experiencing some more challenges with with living at home and so more supports might be needed. Sometimes uh, carers at this point might be requiring some day-to-day respite, for example, or there might be things like Meals on Wheels required. And then when we're looking at stage three, people's needs are really, really changing at this point, to the point where they might be needing more supportive care
1: and perhaps transitioning into residential aged care facilities. So many benefits to a staged process. I mean, I love using the chronic kidney disease stages, for example. It really helps guide my management. But... Where these really come in to be useful is that you can really um, talk to the families and the carers about what to expect. And we call that anticipatory guidance. So if we can make the diagnosis in stage one, which is what we'd really like to be doing, then we can talk to patients about what to expect along the way. So, for example, when we say in stage two, there might be some significant behavioural change. So all of a sudden, someone might start wandering. you've actually warned them that that might happen. So it doesn't come as a shock. It, it's They're not so difficult or um, distressing to manage because we've talked about the fact that that might change and we've sort of explained that some of these changes aren't because the person's just being difficult to manage. It is because there's a disease process there and and the person living with a dementia can't make sense anymore of perhaps their context or someone coming in to do personal care, for example. So they might find that quite frightening, and they might respond in a way that you wouldn't expect. And the classic thing, I guess, is that we can see people who are very gentle and mild-mannered all of a sudden becoming quite aggressive and, and yelling or screaming, and that can be really cr- confronting. But if you've worded people up that that's something to expect, it's just not so difficult to manage then. The other thing I think
0: it can help with is also the carer burden, because carers often feel a need to keep people at home and manage it all themselves. Whereas if you explain to them that at stage three, people are really needing much more dependent care and often needing to live in a residential aged care facility, it takes away that that worry that they have of of having to make that decision. They know that it might be something that's coming
1: and so you can prepare a bit better for it. Mm. And the person living with dementia, they might have had the opportunity to go and look at some residential aged care facilities to say, okay, I I don't want to go into a residential aged care facility or a nursing home. But if I am, I'd like this one. And then everyone sort of is on that same page. And that's, again, the beauty if we can get these diagnoses made um, earlier rather than later. Yeah, it gives people more choice over their future. Yeah.
2: Which comes back to another theme that we're trying to emphasise, which is keeping the person with the dementia central to the process so that they can be involved in this decision making as long as possible, which is why again, trying to make a diagnosis in stage one is of benefit. So we've talked a little bit or quite a lot about the theory and the frameworks to assist in making a diagnosis of dementia. I think we might leave it there for today. But in the next episode, we'll cover off on practical approaches, how I might do that in clinical practice. If you're itching to get there, that program will be available immediately. You can go straight there. Thanks, Steph and Marita, for helping walk us through some of those frameworks for... Thinking about how to make a diagnosis of dementia. There's quite a lot of theory involved in that, and uh, we've included some links in our show notes to courses and recent webinars that we've done that you may want to go and have a look at. If you want more resources, you can head to our website at dta.com.au or follow. Dementia Training Australia on Facebook or at Dementia Train AU on Twitter. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.
1: If you're a person living with dementia or if you're a family member or carer of someone living with dementia, Dementia Australia has some great resources. The National Dementia Helpline is 1800 100 500 or you can visit dementia.org.au.
2: Dementia in Practice is an initiative of Dementia Training Australia, which is funded by the Australian Government.